an art that I haven't quite developed yet. But if you can learn to shut up and to let your guests say what they have to say, it would be a sign of great wisdom. But then wisdom is a virtue and I'm too old to worry about it. Welcome to Centerpiece NY, the stories of people, young and old, who have put down some serious roots in the Irish community in New York. This is Paul Finnegan, the creator, producer, and presenter of this podcast. Our centerpiece for this episode, our season two kickoff, is a man well known to many, New York Irish radio legend, Adrian Flannelly. But, as with all our centerpieces, we are going to know him even better by the time we're done. Born in 1942, Adrian Flannelly landed on the shores of America on October 18, 1959, not sure if he was coming for a month or a lifetime. Turns out it was the latter, and here we are six decades later, his life having taken many twists and turns along the way, with a full-on career in music and then in radio in the Big Apple. And we are all the better for it. It is radio in recent times for which we know him best, and atop this platform, Adrian became an influencer, with a deep reach into the Irish community in New York, long before Facebook and Twitter were even a twinkle in the Internet's eye. But from whence in Ireland did he come, exactly? As a child, it was a place that was shrouded in mystery, as is the way of the Celts, mysteries he felt compelled to explore later from afar, from New York, when the blinkers of his childhood had fallen away. Home, I still think of it as home. I was born in the village, a small village in the parish of Etty Mass, uh, called Castle, And we had a few houses that were left in our village, but there was a great air of secrecy about the ruins of houses and telltale signs, but you couldn't get much information because, of course, the famine had uh, wiped out most of uh, the west of Ireland in particular and uh, was particularly vicious in our parish where actually almost 60% of the residents of the parish of Atimas either died on the side of the road, the lucky ones made it to a boat, and uh, many of those, at least 80 or 90 families, uh, actually perished en route to 
America, uh, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, wherever they were heading. I think the hang-up with uh, the lack of knowledge about the Irish famine and the devastation and everything was more attuned to Ireland and to when I was growing up in Ireland because the famine was not referred to at all. There was the survivor guilt and there were people who grew up in a village and their neighbors were starved to death or somehow emigrated. We talk about a million and a half in a very short period of time. So that gave me a sense that, uh, and nobody bothered to tell me, that my home parish of Attic Mass was the first parish in Ireland to report death from starvation in a letter that was written by the parish priest to the Crown. It was ignored, it was never answered, but gave me a sense, you know, of from whence I came. You'll have noticed that Adrian did not even once mention which Irish county he comes from, because for him there's only the one, and that would be the county of Mayo. His daughter, Eileen, offers this reflection. I don't think there are proper words to express the depth of love and pride my father has for his homeland, Ireland, and in particular the county of Mayo. As children, we were fortunate enough to bask in the love of our family at home, along with our deep-rooted Irish culture and our heritage. And as adults, we all truly share it. So to sum it up, Duck your heads, folks, because when the sing-songs are flowing and that grand and lovely county of Mayo is sung, you can all be sure that my dad is going to let something fly. By the time I was 17, I didn't show any great signs of, of the power and, and the yen for uh, academia. Uh, I think... There may have been a good reason why I was actually told I was going to America, not asked. It was one of those things. So I think I, I found out maybe three weeks before I came to America, nobody told me whether I was going to be here for a few months or a few years, and definitely and nobody suggested that it might be a lifetime but it was a turning point in my life. It was the best thing that ever happened. Your parents were school teachers. Were they blow-ins to the area? No, not at all. My, my father was born and raised in Atimas. And my mother uh, came from Bohola, from the village of Lismoran and Bohola. Most of us who land in New York are blessed with relatives who will give us a landing pad even if it's only a pull-out sofa for a few weeks, on the understanding that that landing pad is also a launching pad. Adrian was no exception. But it just so happened his clan were to New York politics what the Kennedys were to Boston 50 years prior. And that clan was of Mayo. My mother, her brothers, wound up coming to America. First of all, an older brother, Bill O'Dwyer, uh, became mayor of New York, and then his brother, my uncle Paul, was a renowned uh, civil rights leader. 
New York became an eye-opener for Adrian. So, of these two Irish giants on America's political landscape in the 20th century, the world of Paul O'Dwyer's Irish America comes to mind first. In coming from Ireland, you know, even around my time, you had to learn from your surroundings what racism was. We didn't know anything about that. That's only on one level. On another level, I did not know, or many of us who came at that time had no idea that Northern Ireland, there was an issue as far as we knew, and granted I was 17 when I came here, whatever was happening uh, in the North and whatever was there must be all right because, you know, after all, we would uh, take our holidays up in the north, and everybody was beautiful, and nobody spoke about conflict, nobody spoke about any of the reality of what was actually taking place. And I had to learn that in coming to New York. It was, it was a shock. A deep sense of social justice is often overlooked in the Irish stereotype in favour of more superficial elements. But Paul O'Dwyer's life's work was dedicated to it, both in America and in Ireland. He would not be deterred. Paul ran for several different offices in the political line, even when there wasn't a hope in hell that he was going to win. But he wanted to get a platform which would, first of all, be helpful and have influence, not just with the Irish, but I think maybe... Um, subconsciously for the Irish to accept the fact that ethnicity and that race had a place and that, if anything, we should know about that, considering that as immigrants through a century, we just were not welcome and considered to be the lowest of the low and the social scale. Uh, he was running for, I think, a councilman at large for the New York City Council. And I think he did not mind, but I was shocked in going around to areas, particularly Irish areas, you know, being on the back of truck or walking the streets in Irish areas that he was detested for the very thing that he had embarked upon. And it was not unusual, particularly with Irish immigrants, to have, you know, people shouting insults from the window and calling him a commie lover and and the N-word lover and just about anything. And I thought, my God, is this what Irish America, is this what the Irish in America are um, spending their time at. Paul was not quite as popular even when I came here as his brother Bill, the mayor, who, uh, you know, was hail fellow, well met with everybody and quite a jolly person. And he was great with the wink and the nod. And Paul was saying all of the things our people didn't appreciate 
and they honestly felt that he should find something better to do with his time. And uh, frankly, I don't know, in hindsight, if he had that many converts. I think a lot of people tolerated him, and the same people that thought he was some kind of scourge would be the same people who would go to his law office, law firm, in times of trouble. I think at the end of his life, he wouldn't even acknowledge the pro bono work that he had done in a lifetime. It was just, that's the way that it was. Bill O'Dwyer was considerably older than his brother Paul and had come to America much sooner. Bill paved the way for the O'Dwyers in New York politics, becoming the city's last Irish-born mayor and then the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, which at the time was second only to the court of St. James as the prize of American diplomacy. Along the way, he also became a valued member of FDR's wartime effort. Considering the age gap, did Adrian get to know Bill? Oh, very much so. He came to Ireland at one juncture when I was a child. He was much hailed throughout Ireland. He had probably close to the status of a JFK in coming to Ireland. And uh, he took it all with a grain of salt. And again, he was a character. You know, Bill would tell stories. And he had a laugh that you could hear half a mile away. There was nothing about Bill that you couldn't like. He had all those qualities. And again, never bothered Paul one way or the other. And indeed, Paul became a tremendous defender of Bill and his policies. Oh yeah, this is Brian O'Dwyer, of course. Brian O'Dwyer has carried on the civil rights work of his father, Paul, with distinction, making his own mark defending the vulnerable and the marginalized of our society in our courts, and speaking out for immigrant rights and for peace and justice in Northern Ireland. And he has been recognized by his own, most distinctly in 2019, when, as its 258th Grand Marshal, he proudly led New York City's St. Patrick's Day Parade up Manhattan's Fifth Avenue. Very proud of Brian. Illustrious relatives aside, let's get back to the story of Adrian, delving now into why he became a musician. Ironically, being forced to learn classical piano at home in Mayo and later in Mungret College, a Jesuit boarding school now closed near Limerick, almost turned him off music forever. But fate intervened. I had the unique distinction of going home my first term in Mungret to Atty Mass. And after the big welcome home, a letter came to say, that I had flunked music. That had all the makings of a scandal that you wouldn't 
belief. And of course, a lot of disappointment to me. I figured, well, that's pretty good now. Nobody will expect much from me anymore. And then my uncle Paul came home from New York with a piano accordion and the anticipation of this fabulous accordion coming from America and a piano accordion. Wow, that was great. That was going to be fantastic. And then I opened the case and the maggots came out of it. Uh, maggots? And the bellows was riddled with holes and the straps, you know, were disintegrating and so forth. But through brute force and ignorance, I got it, you know, with the uh, sticking plaster on the bellows and made up straps and so forth. And that to me was great. I never had to touch the piano again. And I was just delighted with myself. So I got to be, as they say at home, fair to middling as a piano accordion player. When I came to New York, my uncle Paul I remember that he had represented a lot of the dance halls and the owners and those that were there, particularly when they get into any kind of trouble. One of his clients was Harry McGurk, and Harry owned, or he rented, and might as well have owned, a dance hall in Manhattan and 85th Street, and it was called the... Jaeger House. It was a German place and it was actually Jaeger House, but we knew better. And if the Germans wanted to call it Jaeger House, they should have used a Y. They didn't, and we called it the Jaeger House. And I remember sitting in Paul's office, I was only here a couple of months, and he picked up the phone and he called Harry McGurk and he said, Ah, Harry, how are you? Listen, I have a, a nephew over here from Ireland and uh, he plays, uh, what is that you play? Oh, the Melodian, yeah. And want to, uh, want to fit him in there. What nights do you, the Friday, Saturday, Saturday, yeah, and what time? Nine o'clock. Okay, well, I'll be sending him over on Friday evening. And that's how I got into the music business. And those were the days. That's how business was done. At that time, the union was very strong, a musician's union. The union would say for every couple of hundred you have, you have to have a musician or, or whatever it was. So I was probably one of 13 or 14 musicians on a stage, and nobody bothered me, and I didn't bother them. And we got cash at the end of the night. I had never seen so much cash in one lump as I did. It was fun. And it became a huge, great platform for me in the sense that I got to meet so many people. I played again in the Jager House three nights a week and then with Mickey Carton and another great friend, lifetime friend of mine, John O'Neill from Clare. It was terrific. 
played Gaelic Park on a Sunday. That was an experience and a half because the daddies would be obviously expected to pitch in on a Sunday to help out with the kids and they would dutifully take all the kids up to Gaelic Park and then they would promptly go out to, you know, to the bleachers and go out to watch the football game and all the kids would be running around in the hall. Of course, nobody was into dancing or anything. So we would be on the stage there and the stage was... If it was intended for musicians, I would say somebody thought maybe there'd be two or three at the most, and five of us would be in this little cubbyhole of a place with a galvanized roof. And talk about sweating bullets, oh my God. And then there would be all of these little kids going around, some of them, you know, were sucking bottles and an occasional diaper would be dropped, then older kids would kick the diapers. It was a tremendous experience, but a great leveler, in the sense that, you know, if you thought that perhaps, as an entertainer, you were going places, it was a bonus if the diaper didn't get kicked up on the stage. Well, there was Mickey Carton, he had his band, and he was probably the biggest named Irish-American band those years. And he was a jolly character who had a great personality. And I remember that I would be on the stage, and I would try to be picking chords to go with whatever the band was playing and so forth. And Mickey would kind of sidle up to me and say, Jesus, you have a face on you that would sour milk. And he says, you know about this music business? It's 90% bullshit and 10% playing. And I think I took that seriously and loved it. I had 25 of the best years of my life going hither and yon and going to Philadelphia and Cleveland, Ohio, and whatever. And so to Adrian's radio days. Radio broadcasting would take me back again to home. It was 1953 before rural electrification would hit our parish. Rural electrification. There was a time, believe it or not, when there was no electric grid serving the Irish countryside. Adrian was almost ten years old before he could plug in a radio, but that didn't mean his house didn't have one. If you had a radio, it was powered by batteries. There was what was known as the dry battery, and then the other battery was called a wet battery. And you needed both of them, actually, to operate the radio. But the wet battery would run down quite frequently. You know, you wouldn't use the radio or have the radio on just for listening to 
music or whatever, it was used very sparingly. My father would prepare to hear the news and actually pull a chair over to the radio for full concentration. It was like he was in a trance listening to the radio. And then you shut it off because you might waste the battery. And then this battery would need charging. It was not unusual uh, to see women, mind you, on bicycles on a windy, wet day, cycling into town, holding the wet battery to have it charged. I never quite figured that one out, but I don't know. I think it would be cruel to say, you know, that the fathers, that the husbands would be seen dragging in something on a bicycle that had to be charged. You know, they're better than that, you know. Once in America, he was flabbergasted by the number of radio sets floating around. He tuned in. Sunday nights, there was a tradition of Irish radio programs. Uh, Dorothy Hayden Cudahy, who um, took over radio broadcast from her father, Harry McGurk, who owned the Jig House, he had a, a radio program that came from Rockaway from the back of an Irish import store. Because of that connection, I was fascinated by the medium of radio and said I would love to do that. But for Adrian, something in New York Irish radio was missing. There must be other worthy news to fit around what was mostly Cayley music, more news than using up airtime congratulating Monsignors on their varied anniversaries, and that this maybe should be a little deeper. And I was wondering who I would talk to about what I felt was a need for talk radio. Let's talk about things. Let's talk about Ireland. Let's talk about here. And I would volunteer to fill in for the Harry McGurks and Dorothy Hayden and whoever else was around at the time. And the person who gave me my start in radio that I can thank and always acknowledge is the late Brendan Ward, who just passed away there at the ripe old age of uh, 97. He was a brilliant musician. He was a composer, arranger, everything to do with music. He was brilliant. And he came from Foxford, the next parish to mine. I don't think Brendan came looking for me, but I probably crawled to him and suggested some news. He had just started a program on Saturday mornings, but it had no news, and neither did any of the existing Irish radio programs. So I said to Brendan, is there any news? He said, no. Why? And I said, because I would really like to get into radio, and I think that I could provide news. How was the news gathered? Surprisingly, the method didn't change for another 25 years until the internet, as we discovered in a previous episode of this podcast. The way I got the news, now you're back late 60s, my father got the newspapers at home. He was retired at this stage of the game. And he would pick different news items. And he was an amazing writer. And he would send the abbreviated version of the news. If it was a week old by the time it got here, 
so was the news for the existing Irish newspapers. And that might seem strange, but the Irish newspapers at the time, they had to wait. So it was nothing new to be presenting old news, but it was something. Very, very good morning to your friends. I'm Adrian Flannelly, and uh, we uh, plan to be with you for the next three hours. That's uh, that's we've uh, that's lost accounted for. Now, I don't know what you had uh, planned actually on on doing today, but uh, you know, if you want to kill three hours, hey, you're in the right place. Adrian quickly went from delivering the news to being a pioneer of talk radio in the Irish community. Who was his first guest? Sean McBride was the first interview that I actually did on Brendan Ward's program. And for anybody who remembers Sean McBride, I think he was probably delighted to be asked because he had the most god-awful accent. I've never wanted to be part of the establishment. And possibly at least me a good eat free at the criticize and say what I think if I was part of an establishment uh, bound to uphold certain views. Brendan kept pretending that he was busy selecting music and I knew that he must be seething. Looking back, does any one interview stand out? I remember my cousin Frank Durkin, who again was a great civil rights activist and definitely a great defender of the cause. He said, get yourself ready because we are driving to Pittsburgh. I said, Pittsburgh? I don't even know where Pittsburgh is. And he said, you will by the time you get there. And I said, why am I going there now? Is it any harm to ask you? And he said, there's a fellow running for president. He is quite liberal and he knows quite a bit about Ireland. I said, really? Okay. And he said, I want you to come down with your tape recorder and let's hear what he has to say. The fellow he was referring to was Jimmy Carter. And I think my interview was probably maybe 40 minutes long. If I got to ask three questions in the period, it was probably a lot. But when I came back and broadcast that on what was limited area radio at the time, uh, the response was incredible. Perhaps my best interviews were with entertainers, so many entertainers, Phil Coulter, the Clancy Brothers, the Wolf Tones. And through the years, the, the Coors, uh, the Cranberries, Saw Doctors, who come to New York and play live in our studio, all of them who would be coming into town anyway, many of them for the first time. And um, they would come into the studio, you know, very limited space in the studio, but they would be happy. It is no exaggeration that for many years Adrian's studio was ground zero for Irish voices celebrating St. Patrick's Day in New York. We were very well positioned because Madison Avenue was only one block from 
the parade route. So politicians, you know, this was their day to court the Irish. We had every governor along the way. Each mayor would come in, ministers from Ireland. Again, the Irish consulate was only a block on the other side. And sometimes uh, politicians may have to wait for two three hours to even get a spot. So there were many invited guests and there were an equal number of people who weren't invited, but it was a great place and a place to be. I have been in commercial radio for the last 52 years. You don't get rich from radio. You get by if you're lucky. But in terms of a career, there is nothing better. But again, as I say, there's not much room for ego in this uh, career. All through our lives, other forms may come and go, but radio, radio is still going to be, it's going to be there. Broadcast technology was always changing, but Adrian managed to stick with it until the internet, and though he saw its power, it baffled him. Luckily for him, a very important person in his operation took it all in her stride, Adrian included. Fortunately, I didn't even get to have an opinion on that because I had a new producer, and Anya Sheridan was a whiz with internet and she knew everything inside out. She had come in, actually, in a last-ditch effort to save this Titanic of a broadcast promotions company that was doomed. And she said it could be straightened out. Passage of time, the company was no longer in the red, but I did notice that our director-manager, Ms. Sheridan from... Longford seemed to be making a hell of a lot more money than I was. So one thing led to another, and I got even with her, married her. I know, she's great. And she takes a lot of slagging, and I get away with it. So what the hell, I have nothing to complain about. Sure, look it, she's well used to him. I realized early on when I started working with Adrian that I didn't need to put so much effort into research for his guests. I would leave a brief synopsis in front of him, which, of course, he never looked at. <laughs> Adrian's style is chat rather than interview, so the guest feels more comfortable. And when they do, they open up and they share their stories. And now, a word from our friends at the Celtic Irish American Academy in Galway. My name is Brian Fahey, director of the Celtic Irish American Academy. I would like to invite you to join us on our next programme, which takes place in Salt Hill, Galway, from July the 10th to the 23rd, 2022. Our two-week immersive summer programme for high school students is now enrolling. Come join us 
on this wonderful adventure in a classic Irish setting. This is Caitlin from Parkland, Florida. In July 2019, I attended the Celtic Irish American Academy as an emerging Irish American young leader, fully immersing in the culture and heritage of Galway, Ireland. We stayed with an outstanding host family for two weeks, touring and attending classes on leadership, business, and volunteering. The memories I have and the friendships I made will last a lifetime. For more information, visit our website at CelticIrishAmericanAcademy.com. And now, back to Centerpiece NY. Deep down, my kids and the generations before me always had a lot of pride in family. When I was growing up, I think my mother said it best once, when one of us is up, we're all up. When one of us is down, we have to change that status. Is it peculiar to the Irish? No, but uh, we're better at it. The separation anxiety from leaving the parish and winding up outside Limerick was uh, to my brother and I, it was something like being banished to Van Diemen's land. So that was my first taste of the feeling of loss. In hindsight, it doesn't make that much sense, but it was a wake-up call about what separation anxiety was, separation for the family. I have to say that for the first few years in New York, separation anxiety and the fear of being stuck here, the loneliness uh, was something that I was uh, well able to relate to. And the family for which he was lonely? Adrian was the second youngest of five siblings. The eldest, Enda, who had a career in hotel management and later as a music teacher, passed in 2014. Of his two older sisters, Betty is still going strong. His younger brother Finton chose an equestrian life and is now a respected breeder of horses on the plains of Kildare. But the story of his other sister, Irene, is a tale of a less enlightened Ireland. My sister Irene, who was two years older than me, was a nun, a St. Louis nun. And she entered the convent at age 17. And everybody thought that was absolutely fine. Uh, it wasn't, but nobody kind of recognized it at the time. Irene spent the next 13 years in the convent as a nun, as a sister, as a teacher, a damn good one at that. But during that period, she had a couple of nervous breakdowns. She developed somewhat of a stammer. And the good sisters, and the Reverend Mother at the time, wrote a letter, actually, to my father and mother saying that Irene was really 
not, well, I'm paraphrasing, but not really pulling her weight. And would they please pick her up and just uh, uh, let them know when that would be convenient? So they fired her? They fired her. Not only did they fire her, but they dismissed her and never followed up to find out, you know, how she was doing or how she wound up, so forth. I didn't realize, actually, that the sisters, as part of her treatment for her nervous breakdowns, that she went to the John O'Gods, I believe it was, in Dublin, on numerous occasions for shock treatment, and my parents never knew about it. And, of course, any letters that came to or were written by the sisters, they were all well siphoned and read and reread. And if there was something in there that the sisters didn't like, they would be politely told to remove that. I had difficulty with that, and it was of such secrecy that I didn't even get it. I thought, you know, perhaps she changed her mind or that was it. And, of course, many years later, we found out that there was abuse going on in the convent as well, even with the sisters. After the convent, Irene Flannelly led a rich and full life with a successful career as a schoolteacher and author. Irene never married and continued to dedicate her life to the church as well as to her pupils who came from impoverished homes. She was famously known for her generosity, kindness and fundraising abilities which brought in large donations to the church and school. Her own salary was mainly used to provide clothing, books and any other resources the school children, her kids, needed. She published numerous children's educational books in both English and Irish and used these tools to further the education of her students. She passed in 2011. It didn't endear me uh, too much, particularly since we knew nothing up until then, other than, you know, nuns were doing a tremendous job. And yes, uh, nuns took in orphans as we knew them, and they were all fine, as were the clergy, our family. You know, some of the greatest priests, sisters, very diligent compassionate and whatever and to think that as the decades passed particularly in the last couple of decades where we found out there was all kinds of skullduggery uh, going on now when you hear any story about a priest the chances are it's not a story praising the amazing vocation the work that they do, the abuse that they take, uh, the, the one brush that comes out as if they were all 
a scourge on society rather than, you know, a great, great and powerful group of men and women. Am I fond of organized religion? Mm, no, but I have nothing against it. I have four children. There's chronological order. Linda, my son Paul, Eileen, and Kathleen. I have four kids and four grandchildren. My four children grew up on Irish music, Irish dancing, mountainous trips to Ireland. My daughter Eileen, who I might as well get the plug in, is president of the Irish Institute. She has a track born to Ireland, and um, the rest of my kids get there when they can. Actually, Eileen has, you know, split personality confused because we're not even sure whether she's Irish in Ireland and American in America or vice versa, and it gets too complicated. But we know in the course of a year, if Eileen doesn't make three or four trips, our lives aren't worth living. My grandchildren... Two of them, Gavin Enright and his sister Fallon, have lived in Long Beach. I think they were probably born in Long Beach. I should know that, but I can get away with a lot of stuff now. My youngest daughter, Kathleen, her mother was Italian. Kathleen married a Colombian. So I have two grandchildren there. And those youngsters would be Sebastian Paul and Scarlett Pia. I am sick and tired reminding that they have Irish because, you know, they live out with the Colombians and the Italians out there, and I don't get the same crack at it, so I feed them as much Irish as I can. never lived outside New York, never dreamed of living anywhere outside of New York City. I felt that if I moved out of New York City, I would get severe rashes or hives or, you know, something unknown. And I had lived, I suppose, around 20 years, if not more, in Forest Hills, which was fantastic because you could look out the window and there was Manhattan, there was Madison Avenue, there was our studio, and it was terrific. And then comes COVID. We're on the 20th floor, and everybody seems to be doing well except for myself. So for five weeks, I was locked on the 20th floor, couldn't get out to the elevator, couldn't use the elevator, and everybody reminded me of how bloody old I was and that I shouldn't be putting my nose out to the door in the first place, much less be out on the balcony smoking a cigarette. So my wife, Anya, and my kids got together and without any consultation whatsoever, we came to Long Beach for last summer because my kids were here. My kids, my grandchildren, Linda... Uh, Paul, it's the best thing that could ever happen. 
And we got over the embarrassment of saying we wouldn't leave New York City for any reason under the sun because we never looked back. And now if we have to go into the city, it's like we're subjected to purgatory and, and a burst tire. Can't believe what we've done, but it's a great place. We're near the Rockaways. There's an Irish community that's around. Adrian has had his finger on the pulse of the Irish community in New York and even nationwide, and of Ireland itself, from the first day he sat in behind the microphone at a radio station. And his influence has caused even the most powerful to make their case on his show, everyone from presidential hopefuls to the leaders that brought us the Irish peace process. I asked him where he thinks he was able to move the dial for the Irish. Two areas among many come to mind for him. The first was getting the undocumented Irish to come forward in the late 1980s to apply for the Morrison and Donnelly visas in a lottery. Regular listeners to this podcast will recall the story behind these lotteries in season one. I felt that I have a platform. Let me use that platform for something useful. And since there was a lot of suspicion around divulging your name and your address or your legal status and so forth. I figured it's not what I say, but let me get some people who can be trusted to say it. At that time, that was Cardinal O'Connor and the hierarchy in the immigration that was, you know, people that would get to come in and sit down. So actually, I did very little other than say, if you're reluctant to send in your application, send it to me. And I can help here in the studio on weekends, and we're going to sort this out. We're going to get these applications down to Washington, and we're going to get them down at the right time in Washington. And there is no fee there's no charge. All we want is to do this. So it was not flannelly run. It was community run. A lot of young people and a lot of the established community here that knew and had experience in knowing that if we get together and if we operate as a group, we can get things done. And sure enough, there were thousands and thousands of visas that came out of both of those lotteries, the Donnelly and the Morrison visas. And now to that other great issue that has moved Adrian. At the start of this episode, Adrian recounted the profound and lasting effect Ireland's great hunger of the mid-19th century had had on the society around him as a child in Atty Mass and on the Irish people. It was a decimation, and in some ways a lottery too, as to who lived and who died, who left and who stayed, in a scattering that gave rise to an Irish diaspora that is to be found almost everywhere on earth today, and leaves Ireland with a smaller population than it had almost 200 years ago. A rare occurrence in recent world history, to put it mildly. The Irish Hunger Memorial at Battery Park City has attracted millions of visitors over the years, literally millions of visitors. And there are so many people, Irish-American people, who stumble on it. 
There are others who are not too sure what this is, but it's a cantilevered, you know, hill. It has the ruins of of a famine house. It has the pathways, and it has original, authentic stones from each county in Ireland, all engraved in the stone. It's fantastic. It's well-maintained by the uh, New York City Department of Parks. It was a brainchild of former Governor Pataki. Well, he took credit for it, but it was actually his mother. His grandmother came from County Louth, from a small little parish. And in their house, long before the rest of us knew anything about the famine, the great hunger, Grandma Pataki, she carried the stories through the Pataki family. At the time, the ground their memorial was built on was estimated to have a value of $1 billion. It came without any outside support. We got it for nothing. So how the hell were we going to do this? So an Irish-American committee was formed to decide primarily what kind of a memorial would honor the memory of those in the famine in this choice area in Bowery Park City in downtown Manhattan. I had quite a good relationship with the Governor Pataki and his family and his cousins and his mother. And I was on the committee with, you know, a number of others. It was very diversified. It was all Irish-American except for myself. I was Irish, so you can't get much more diversified than that. And it was decided that, you know, a park would be nice, you know, something, maybe a Celtic cross. And I said quite innocently at the time, and i never be allowed to forget it, that one more Celtic cross or statue would even invite more pigeons to crap on it. So I put in my two cents and they thought because I was Irish born and that I was in the west of Ireland and I reminded them that my parish was the first parish, you know, to report deaths and starvation and a lot, that perhaps I knew or had some better sense of how this would go. The notion of what might be appropriate for the area was a world search, again, through the Internet. And there were more than 400 submissions of rendering came in through the committee. And there was one artist, Brian Toll, who none of us knew, but he was an artist, he still is, uh, lives in downtown Manhattan. And he presented a famine house on a half acre of land. He had gone to Ireland, he had gone to Connemara, he had gone to 
Ackle Island, the hidden village where everybody got wiped out and nobody cared, wasn't even discovered for a long time after that. And then in his own family, he had a relative who was in Mayo. Well, that was good. Was from my home parish about him mass. So, you know, God works whatever way he wants to work. And we can't be grousing about it, and definitely I'm not going to grouse about it. But when it was almost complete in the shadow of the Twin Towers, one block from the Twin Towers, when the Twin Towers came down on that fateful day of September 11th, you could hardly see uh, the Irish Hunger Memorial. There was debris, there was dust, but... That's 20 years ago. It has been not only built, but it has been rebuilt because of Hurricane Sandy. The foundation had to be done, so Battery Park City Authority, exactly as it was according to their plan, they marked every stone, put it on barges, put it across the Hudson, on the Jersey side, and over a period of maybe eight or nine months, rebuilt with now a new foundation and what is the jewel. The great hunger is long past, but the dead and dislocated deserve to be recognized. We got the word that the governor of New York... That would now be former Governor Andrew Cuomo, since we made this recording... You'll have to do your own research on what happened there. He had decided that in very rapid order, he wanted to have a monument and a memorial for, for the essential workers. A brilliant idea, and uh, we were all delighted with it, but the smile went the other side of the face when we found out that the rendering was all but going to smother the Irish Hunger Memorial. The monument itself would be nearly up against the gable. Nobody was asking us, well, what about the Irish community? What, what do they think? And we didn't have that much clout because we never did. We were never asked. No, we de- never did contribute anything to it. But before... The Hunger Memorial was even settled on for that area. I was appointed by Governor George Pataki as Irish cultural liaison, and I still hold that position. A great number of the residents in the area are Irish, and they started reaching out directly and indirectly and that would land on my desk. I, in turn, uh, felt that being cultural liaison seemed not to matter a damn to the powers that be, the governor. That's how we got it in the first place. The governor thought it would be a good idea to put something there. It happened. Governor Cuomo wanted a monument and a little park there, And if he wanted to put it upside down on top of the Irish Hunger Memorial, so be it. I sought cooperation from 
the Consul General of Ireland, who has, you know, just returned uh, to Ireland after a tremendous and colourful four-year stint here. And I organised a business lunch with the powers that be in Battery Park City. B.J. Jones, who is the president with the consulate, and ourselves, it was hammered out. And suffice it to say, and I'm very happy to say, that whatever other things we have to worry about in life, having anything in, around, or against the gable of the Irish Hunger Memorial in Battery Park City, you take that off the list. It's not going to happen. You're a radio host, you have a microphone, and hopefully if you have a guest, you have a second microphone. And your program is only as good as what comes out of the second microphone, and I, I really mean that. I would hope that Judgment Day, I would be judged for a lot of the work, some of it, if not most of it having to do with my being blessed to be in the right place at the right time, whether that was through music, broadcast, radio, whatever. That's a gift from on high. So, life is great, and Shane. there you have it. The interviewer has been interviewed. The man who has spent a career drawing out the stories of others has had his own story drawn out of him. Our conversation with Adrian took place in August 2021 at his home in Long Beach on Long Island, New York. Be sure to check out our website at centerpieceny.com. That's C-E-N-T-E-R-P-I-E-C-E-N-Y dot com. There you'll find out everything you ever wanted to know about this podcast, but were afraid to ask. Sláin go fóil.